Welcome to Buy, Grow, Sell, the podcast for entrepreneurs looking to acquire, grow, or exit a business, hosted by Simon Bedard. Hey there, it's Simon Bedard here. If you're brand new to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, then welcome. It's great to have you on this journey. Since its launch, I've interviewed many entrepreneurs that have bought, grown, or sold a business. And in some cases, they've completed all three steps and started all over again. Our goal is to share the stories of business owners that have traveled at least part of this cycle so that we can learn from their experience. Whether it's the dizzying heights of success or the hard lessons learned through adversity, we get to the heart of what drives success and how to apply these lessons on your journey. So join us for the best insights, interviews, and inside information on how to buy, grow, and sell a business straight from the entrepreneurs who've lived and breathed it. You know, we talk a lot about finding your niche and carving out your area of the market. And my latest guest, Etan Weiner, shows how to differentiate even in a saturated market. As an Amazon reseller, his company, Quantum Networks, was not the only fish in the sea. But what Etan and his business partner did so successfully was created these value-added services within their e-commerce business. And it worked. Revenue increased by over 4,000% from 100K to almost $30 million, which naturally caught the eye of a strategic acquirer. It's an interesting journey, and I'm excited to dive into it more with you. This is Eitan Wiener. Eitan, welcome to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. Hey, Simon. How are you? Thanks for having me. Ah, my pleasure indeed. I'm very well. I'm very glad to have you on the show. And, uh, and willing to sort of have a chat to us and share a bit of your story. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's really great to meet you. So, you know, Etan, I know we're going to get to having a bit of a chat about, um, you know, the, the business quantum networks that you're a part of. Um, you've certainly been involved in numerous entities. So, so hopefully we can, we can pack as much of that into this, uh, this period as we can. But maybe you could kick off for us a little bit and just give the listeners a bit of your background and kind of what got you into business in the first place. Sure. So... I have an interesting background as far as business is concerned in that I have no business background. So I actually went to school. I was like pre-med and then I actually went to dental school for a year and I really didn't like it and I didn't know what I was doing. And I decided to, I found some job posting about some digital marketing and kind of that's like the, the beginning of the uh, story of my business background. And I kind of just, started from there i can go into detail of of the journey but there's no background it's all learning on the streets or as you go uh etc cool hey out of interest you know a a lot of my guests that have come on um have talked about you know family and things like that that might have led i mean does your does your family run their own businesses do they come from that kind of background so on the contrary, no. My families are all doctors and dentists, and all my <laughs> friends are doctors, and they're great, and I like science. But no, I mean, my grandfather was in business, actually both of them, but mostly not, not, not don't have any family experience. So it's also, that's also why it's a bit odd. 
Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So it's um, <laughs> one of my uh, one of my dear friends was telling me if you're um, if you're looking around the room of your family, you know, and you can't work out who the weird one is, it's probably you. Um, and so that was that was his advice to me. So it sounds like maybe, maybe we're kindred spirits here, you know, where maybe the different ones in our family because uh, I certainly yeah. didn't come from an entrepreneurial background either. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I, I still a little interesting to me. I, I think about what it would be like if I didn't have certain things happen. Uh, it's, you know, like every time I go to the dentist, I'm like, what if this was me every day? Um, it's hard to fathom, but thank God I'm, I'm not there and, um, pretty happy. Uh, for yeah. The most part. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Good stuff. So, so tell us a little bit of quantum networks. What, what was that business? Okay. Um, yeah. So I guess more high level quantum networks was an Amazon reseller. Uh, as you probably notice these days, that's a very hot thing. Um, there's a lot of these aggregators buying up Amazon brands, which you probably see in your business. But when I started, it wasn't hot. It was kind of strange and very difficult and failed a lot myself and my, my partner and some other people that worked with me in order to like pivot to a model that was actually a, a sellable business, which was very hard to do. Now, ironically, Amazon businesses are being sold all the time, but like, you know, 18 months ago or two years ago when I sold that, like was not a thing. So my timing maybe wasn't great in that regard especially a reseller. So basically we resold electronics and tech products. So we had a few different models, um, but basically we had exclusive brands that we would represent and do all the advertising and logistics and support and we'd make a margin on the sale. And then we had like our own branded accessories. Um, we, we pivoted to this uh, bundle model that my partner kind of came up with because he wanted to be relevant. So, you know, similar to some of your other guests, I'm sure you tell your clients uh you know okay what's the point like is your business worth anything what's the big deal so you know four or five years ago we're like okay what's the point yeah we do a lot of revenue maybe we make enough to pay the bills so we started to create a brand we, we created this bundle model uh that my partner john and i kind of pioneered and we went from just reselling to adding value so for example i like i like to give this example especially on a podcast uh these podcasting these mics which you know some people have those big ones um those are the kind of products, especially that are very useful now with this whole new world. And those are the kind of products that are a bit prosumer that you need a little help and support, right? You could buy it on Amazon, but really even the cross-related, you know, options on Amazon are a bit AI and weak. Yeah. So that's the kind of thing, if you remember going to a store, uh, if some people know what, remember what that was like, you actually have a salesman help you. So we found all these products that are a bit prosumer that we already focused in and we created these value-added bundles around it. So if you have a podcasting mic, we would sell the mic plus the filter plus the cable as a solution. So it was very above board as well. So we told the brand about it. Let's say it was Job or Sennheiser, one of these bigger brands. They're very you know concerned about their brand and their image. So it wasn't done in a you know in it was it was done in a professional way where they approved of it, they liked it, the customer got a good experience. We got a more strategic sale. So we had our own dedicated listings. It was called Blue Coil. That was the brand. And we created thousands of them over time where we stood out as like a bundle solution. Now that's been done before on Amazon and people still do it, but it was kind of a niche model, which allowed us to go from just being a reseller with lower margins to a more strategic branded partner. So we wound up with like a lot of sales in this bundle model, maybe like 60 plus percent of our revenue, all different bundle solutions for streaming and storage and you name it. And then we had like still 30 or 40 brands that we were like the exclusive reseller of that really needed the cash up front and it was a margin business. And then we still had some just typical resale stuff that wasn't so added value. 
but that combined mix was what I guess was attractive to this acquirer. That was really a retail consumer product good company, and they wanted more of an online presence. And they had some digital acquisitions, and we were like one of their, I don't know, fourth or fifth in that arena. So that's like a really, I guess, summary, short summary of what we were and and who we became. Yeah, wow, wow. A lot to to kind of unpack here. So you started the business, I think, in 2008. Is that is that right? Yeah, it was very different then, but officially, yes. Yeah, okay. So, so I mean, you mentioned you sort of going into electronic products and stuff like that. What, what, what drove that? I mean, did you have a kind of a passion for that, a background, or what, what led to that sort of decision? Yeah, so when I started, so I, I, first I got into online marketing, and then I was consulting for um, this guy who was, had a telecom background. And he was doing telecom infrastructure build out. We actually did some stuff in Australia. So worked with all these different car- carrier carriers, but it was like a business to business online sale. So we were listing all these wireless products and services online and we would get leads and try to figure out how to close them and hook people up with the right um, integrator or the right installation partner, et cetera. So it was like this SEO based lead gen based on what I knew in, in, in online marketing. And then, that was cool. We made some money on these deals, these big government and large network deals, but it was a very slow sales cycle, right? So it could take three, four years to close. Um, and it wasn't really paying the bills. So we kind of accidentally, or I don't know, maybe purposely pivoted to something that was more consistent. So we actually listed some of these products on eBay um, and they were more niche. So there wasn't really competition. And then we used a lot of our best practice to market them. So first we started on eBay, then we started with the Magento website. And we just used best practice that I had learned and my partner had learned of, you know, SEO and pay-per-click and Google shopping before it was really competitive. It was very easy then. And these were brands that had no presence. So we quickly became like the biggest, the fastest growing resellers of these brands that led eventually to going out to Amazon, which is a whole new audience. So once we brought these exclusive brands that we kind of had exclusivity on to Amazon, the, the sales just like went crazy because we had good pricing, we had the infrastructure down to grow, and then also we had the audience. Once we hit Amazon, it kind of got a bit fragmented because there was so much growth. But actually, we came back to our roots where we focused more on this niche model, right? So then it was like niche products, and eventually it was that plus uh, a solution of bundling. But it was always based on like, how do we add more value to the client, not just reselling and not just me too. So we got a, we got a little lost on the way and maybe neglected to look at margins or whatever. But hopefully, or I guess we figured it out uh, to some extent. I, I think that's kind of one of those traps of, of fast growth, right? Like, you you know, you, everything's moving so fast, it's hard to sometimes come and pick up all the pieces of, you know, well, are we crossing the T's and dotting the I's on margin and all these other things in our business? So um, so that makes sense. What does high growth mean? I mean, obviously, obviously, look, you know, only things that you can share with me, but can you can you give us an indication of like revenue and things like that? Yeah, I think... In the beginning, you know, once we started selling, we did a few hundred thousand. And then I think the following year, year we did like three million. And then once we hit, we, we hit Amazon, we were at around three million. And then once we were like more, uh, I don't know, a year or 18 months into Amazon, we were already at like almost 30 million. Now, yeah, well. again, that wasn't all, let's say, profitable sales, which I learned, let's say, later on or the hard way. But because of all that pain and growth and pivoting, we learned kind of how to do it right, right? How to ship and how to do taxes and how to do international and how to do whatever model uh, it may be and what works and what doesn't kind of before a lot of these other brands that are doing it now have done it. So I've done it like in a different environment. I mean, now it's very different because it's Amazon's that much bigger. So there's still a lot of opportunity, but like the models are, are the same. 
Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Take, take me back to the beginning again for a moment. Did So you mentioned, I think, you've, you had a business partner? I had two. I had a partner that I joined. Uh, he had this telecom business. And I, again, I was with an agency helping him with digital. And then I kind of partnered with him on initiative. And then I have another partner. I had another partner um, until I sold, uh, John, who was actually in high school. Uh, he was only 15. I was 24. Uh, and uh, my other partner was a bit older and that was the beginning. We kind of sat in a small cube in Manhattan. We like sublet from someone who was subleasing, we had no real money or anything. And we just kind of started from there. Yeah. Cool. But, uh, okay. So I've got to ask, right? I mean, you, you know, our, our core firm is exit advisory group. We talk a lot about exiting and planning and all this sort of stuff. Was there ever a discussion between you guys around so what are we building here? Where are we going? What's the end game look like? Or was it just, you know, we're all young and hungry and excited about an opportunity? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if I was ever asked that, but I think about it. Because um, now I think for this business I'm running now, which we'll talk about, like, what's the point? What's the goal, like, yep. monetarily-wise and quality of life-wise? But then, yeah, no, I was just, like, sucking it in and learning and growing and failing. I never really thought about where it would go. I guess maybe I was naive and thought, oh, it could just get bigger. Again, I wasn't looking at margin. I had no idea what I was doing, um, but sometimes that's good, right, to a yep. point. Um, so it definitely made a lot of mistakes. But no, we never really talked about, oh, we're going to be the biggest this or that. There was no set goal. There was no business plan. There was it was very on the fly. Over time, we we developed more mature strategies and plans and forecasting and again, learning finance stuff the hard way, which I'm still learning. But no, there was no objective. Uh, however, that May sound. I don't know if you've heard that a lot, but there was none. Well, I think too at that age, I mean, you've got so much runway. It's like you can't even see the end of the runway, right? It's like, ah, we're just heading in that direction. Yeah. I mean, I was ma- I was already married. I had like a kid on the way and I was like out of school and I was like very anxious about that. So I needed to try to succeed. But yeah, I had some time to play around a little. My wife was working and like I had a little time to figure it out. And I guess I eventually did, but it was not easy. Yeah. 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 So, so okay. So, one of the other fa- the, the the big questions. Yeah. You know, did you guys have any kind of shareholders agreement? Did you, or did you implement one at some point or anything like that? Yeah. Good question. Also, one of these like stupid. Why did you do that? We had <laughs> some primitive agreements, but it, it, it you know as you probably hear from founders, it usually comes back to haunt you if not done right. Whatever lawyers do cost. That we figured it out because obviously there's some challenges along the way with whatever investor or person. But I guess it wasn't that bad. Definitely caused some pain that could have been avoided, which I learned in the future to be careful. Yep. But I guess it was like quasi formal, so it could have been worse, but definitely led to some issues, which is I'm sure you hear that a lot. So for anyone listening, make sure you have all your papers in a row, even if you're not sure it's going to work out or it's just not worth uh, the legal cost uh, if something happens, God forbid, to, to neglect that. Yeah, yeah. Have, have, have the awkward discussion while we're all still friends, right? <laughs> and hopefully you're exactly. still friends at yeah. the end, but... <laughs> yeah, listen, at the same time, like, I remember my, my older partner saying, like, you know, it's just a piece of paper, which is true, and, you know, lawyers are lawyers, but still, like, you need a, a framework, and it's not just, you know, legal is more extreme, but even just to understand, like, to your point, what's the point? Like, what, what are the the shareholders' values and, and, and mission statement? All those things should be done, even if it's cheesy or, or premature, like, it's, it's really important. Yeah, yeah, starting point. Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess it's as you say, it's a, it's a framework, right? It helps guide thinking and discussions. It's not, uh, it's not necessarily where you're going to end up. 
in the end. But it's um, yeah, ho- hopefully, and and you know, had plenty of guests whose partnerships have all just gone swimmingly, and they've had a great time, and they've all ended, started happy and ended happy, and challenges along the way. That, but they did it together, and it's all this lovely you know bromance story but it's um but yeah look so so many of these things can go sideways so it's um yeah it is an, an interesting an interesting factor so you started in t- 2008 and i think you said you sold in 2020 was it yeah the first day of 2020 yeah right okay okay yeah. so so f- was that 12 odd years um yeah. 11 and a half something like that can I ask, was there a point in the journey that you started to think, hey, maybe we should sell this company? You know, like obviously there's, you know, you've, you obviously did sell, so clearly you had some thoughts at some point. So, yeah. So, again, people who are listening to you and like, it's, it's way out of the game. Like, I, I wasn't thinking like that at all. Like, oh, I could sell or there's a thing like selling or even what that, I mean, now I know a lot about it almost too much in some ways, which is fascinating in its own right. And I'm sure you you have fun with it. Like it's very cool and all the different ways to buy and sell and who you could sell it to. It's cool. It's amazing. Uh, and there's also challenges in it. But no, I didn't really think about that. I think what happened was I was getting a bit burnt out over the last few years of just doing it for so long. And I was always very entrepreneurial and trying to do a bunch of things at once, which usually didn't work. So I actually still started a few other things, which we could touch on, which were hopefully are supposed to be interrelated and not too uh, too much of a distraction. And m- many of them were. Some were distractions and some many failed. Um, but uh, somehow I, I made it together in one piece uh, and learned that lesson. And I wasn't really thinking about selling. I think I got burnt out. I think I just wanted to try other things. I, I personally wasn't able to add as much value because the business was actually running pretty efficiently to a certain extent. Obviously, I had certain contributions, but eventually my partner was doing a really great job. I had a really good team. Again, it was very hard to get it. So what, like, what's the next step? You know, obviously, he, he also had his own decisions to make, and maybe he wanted to look into new things uh, or, or, or figured it was a good time. So then at the end, we're like, okay, like maybe we could sell it. But we're not going to liquidate it. We're not going to give it to our kids. So then it kind of, it started with like maybe, and then like we just, made it happen which was a lot of pain but that's kind of how it arose i think it was burnout slash like next step it wasn't like oh we can make so much money this is amazing it was like we probably need to do this and therefore we'll make it happen yeah so it kind of just it kind of evolved into a sale yeah yeah correct yeah yeah, that's interesting. And and I think too, one of the things I've seen um, a lot is where you do have business partners uh, of different age groups too. Like sometimes people are at a different stage of life. So they're, you know, you start sort of maybe going in different directions of what you want. So it that can be the catalyst for the discussion, I guess. But yeah. what, what was the size of the team by the time you exited? Oh, it's about, it's about 22 people uh, in New York. 22 in New York, and we had me, you know, a bunch of overseas people in Philippines and elsewhere, uh, Eastern Europe. I don't know, maybe maybe 25 and six, including all remote. So it's pretty lean considering the revenue. Yep. Um, but yeah, that, that's that's the that's the approximate amount. Yeah, yeah. And 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 by the time you were sort of getting ready, that that last year or so. I mean, put 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 aside the 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 transaction and the effort that goes into that. But kind of, how many hours a week would you say roughly that you you were typically doing? Um, in the business at that point, 
You're saying before the sale process? Yeah, before the sale process, because that's a unique beast, right? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. So that was also part of the issue. Like, I, I, there's only so much I could contribute uh, after a certain point. You know, my partner was really doing a lot and was good at things that I was not, et cetera. So he probably put in, I, I can't really speak for him, but if I had to say, I don't know, a lot of time, maybe... 10 to 15 hours a day like he works very hard oh wow yeah but not every day again we had more help at certain times than others uh so depends on the people and the the the, the issue you know sometimes it would be a little easier sometimes a little harder he, you know he's a hard worker i used to do those kind of hours and i kind of still did but i wasn't as focused on tasks and goals and then i really took to the sale process because that was like my mission so like i like a challenge I need to be challenged. And I guess every day I wasn't as challenged because there's only so much we could diversify, et cetera. In the current environment, I didn't want to mess with a good thing. So I just really put all my energy into the sale process, which was successful, obviously not easy, but I really took that as like my thing. Like, let's do all the diligence. Let's get all the work in. Let's like speak to the lawyers. And like, I actually enjoyed the hunt a bit, yeah. um, but it was very grueling to your point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, and, and I've had guests and plenty of guests and look obviously done a few things myself but it's um i've had a lot of guests describe it as a second job almost <laughs> i mean uh so it's, it's maybe second and third job uh, so <laughs> yeah. if i didn't have my i didn't if i didn't have my partner john like running the business as you often hear like everyone wants to sell a business but if you fall apart at the end or even if you decline revenue it's a big deal you can't go out on a, on a lull or it's, if you do it's really bad so he was able to run and I was able to focus on the sale. Obviously he helped me with that too, but that was cool. We were able to tag team on that. And I, I recommend, obviously I'm sure people, your, your audience has heard, hear this, has heard this, but yeah, you can't just stop what you're doing and work on the sale because then your business falls apart. It's really, it's a really tight dance. And like, I've seen it go really bad for many people and it's a shame because then you have nothing. You have no, <laughs> it was a weak business and no sale, which happens all the time. No one talks about that, but as you know, most there's a lot of people that never sell or they try and it doesn't work out. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, I've seen it end in tears a few times. <laughs> and and from the from the time you sort of decided, okay, we're going to do this, right? We're going to sell this business. H- how long did it take from that kind of moment to to getting a close? Yeah, I think we were thinking about it at the end of 2018, and then we kind of started talking to some banker broker types in the beginning of. 2019 and then we finalized on a banker in april and then we got a letter of intent in the end of august and then we sold at the end of december so that's like a year all in easier said than done but that's that was the sequence of events yeah yeah and that and that sounds very typical of a lot of the sort of transactions we see, you know, it's, you know, kind of out to 12 months and can be shorter, can be longer, but yeah, it's, um, seems, seems to be the, 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 the average approach. Um, so, so is that how you guys went about it? Then you mentioned a sort of banker broker kind of, kind of people. Is that, is that how you started by speaking to those people and saying, well, tell us about yourself and what you do and how you do it and, yeah. and all the rest? Yeah, so now I actually know a lot more about it, especially because like I'm still in this Amazon space and there's so many sales and whatnot. But and I have some really good bankers I know, and it's 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 again it's very fascinating to me. But I didn't know anything then, so I like to learn. So I actually just started speaking to some of my friends who were in the banking field or M and A. Just how does this work? And again, a lot of them are like, oh well, maybe you know, 
you're an Amazon business. Like, how does that work? Which is a whole other topic as discussed before. But I started just asking kind of what the deal is. And I spoke to some investment banks that were not in the right. Sorry, I spoke to some brokers that were very, I guess, downstream, so to speak, meaning they'll get you a multiple of two or three or maybe four and like a crazy uh, effort. But they also had like this reverse model, right, where they take a lot up front. It's more like just like list you on a website and it's like eBay. Yeah. Which is super cool that that exists, but I wanted to be more strategic. And, you know, in our case, like I'd say, we sold to this public company, which is great, but it's not just that they're public. Obviously, they, they actually weren't public when we sold. They became public after that. But the point is, hopefully they'll, as you know, they'll pay more money because it's more strategic. And, you know, one plus one equals 10. How do you find that? So I knew we had certain qualities or we knew we had certain qualities that would garner that. And a broker is kind of just looking maybe for the quickest, fastest deal. To get five, six, seven, eight X, you need strategy, contacts, network, and to run a process. And that's what we wind up doing. That's that's a really interesting point. And we've seen the same thing. I've, you know, I, obviously in the Australian market, I work with a lot of people in the US and Canada as well. And, you know, the, this common thread seems to be that when you've got brokers um, out there who only work on a success fee only model, well, hey, if all I've got is a hammer, I treat everything like a nail. Um, I get paid when you take the deal. So guess what? This is the deal I've got. You should take it. And and that seems to be a, and, and I don't want to sort of tar everybody with the same brush, but that's been a common approach, I think, for that kind of the brokery kind of end of the market um, as opposed to yeah. maybe, yeah, how do you come up with a strategic campaign? How do you align interests as advisors with the business owners so you're both pushing in the same direction? Yeah, so I, hindsight's twenty twenty, but even in a, a banking scenario, I think these bankers did a good job. If you really go deep, there's there's more, right? Let's say you have an earnout. So do they benefit from that? And you may be like, they shouldn't benefit from an earnout because it's not their work. But what if you have issues and you need their help? What if they ride along with you, which I've heard before, that 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 can work. And if the, if their goal or a banker's goal or a broker's goal is to get you five or ten or whatever million, then once they get a dollar over from a boat from a broker from an offer, if they're if their compensation structure is not such that it matters, they're not going to try more, right? So, so you have to think about that because it's really complicated. The the you should everyone I think should have a banker advisor. I, I'm sure you would agree. I think if you don't, or if you don't think the person could get you three or four percent more, then like they must be really bad. Um, obviously, there's 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 shades of gray there. But even though you have a broker, you have to really be careful about the agreement with them and get an attorney to review that because. If you like, I just gave you a couple of examples about should they be involved in an earnout or an equity swap, or how do you incentivize them? Because if they're not incentivized to milestones, they're just going to take the first deal and just move move on. And I'm not saying that happened to me. I'm saying I've seen that in the space and I see how that plays. And I never would have known that. That's kind of a deep, deep multivariable topic. But yeah, that's that's kind of how I, you know, learned the the lesson. Yeah. Yeah, and isn't it? It's it's a little bit like building a house in a lot of ways. I, I've met numerous people who decided to build their own house. You know, I'm an owner builder, and they do all this work, and they go through all these pain and suffering and learnings, and then they never build another house. So it's like actually, well, <laughs> the first ones where you made all the lessons, got all the hard lessons, and it cost you all this extra money, so you could be better at it. And you know, it's like oh, I have no doubt you you approach deals these days probably differently to how you would have done it the first time around. Yeah, you know, I believe there's a reason for everything. So I believe, you know, whether I got screwed in some ways or benefit in some ways, I could use that for my next company and 
that's that's probably the way to think about it. But not everyone wants to do that or has the energy, and I get that. That's why you have to be really careful. You know, if this is your whole lifelong business and you're, you know, like you have to be, you have to have like this margin of error, and it's it's very complicated. It sounds all like glorious, but it's very very uh, uh, tedious and 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 scary at the same time. Yeah, it's a, it's a funny one, and you know, for those listening who are thinking of of selling or going through this sort of transaction process. As as um, Etan's explained, I mean, it could be twelve months that you're working with these advisors, and you do kind of, in a lot of ways, spend a lot of time. You kind of get to know each other, and you want to kind of make sure that you're going on that journey with the right people. And and I think a lot of that does come down to your gut too. Like you can do all this homework, but I think if you if your gut tells you this this particular advisor is not quite right, um, and and to use a fairly sort of <laughs> vulgar sort of term, I guess, My, as one of my colleagues says, you get, if it stinks at the beginning, it's going to absolutely reek at the end, right? Yeah. <laughs> like So, you know, if it doesn't feel right, you know, it's probably not the right people to jump in that canoe with, right? <laughs> so, yeah, 100%. I agree 100%. And in our case, I did like really want to go with certain parties because they did similar deals. And I thought that was like the most important thing. But I, I saw they were a little off and I was like, okay, like and I, I overlooked it. But then I realized, like, no, this is a problem. So, thank you know, thank thank God for that. But yeah, there's always some you know, someone could always have done something better. It's never going to be perfect. But if you don't really do the diligence on the banker and the deal and the agreement, you're you're shortchanging so much of the the value that you built over your the life of the business. Like as you know, you you make a lot most of the money on the sale. So if you don't do it right, or you do it that much off, it's like it's really significant. So it's important to be uh, prepared and educated. Yeah, yeah, great advice. So, so back to quantum for a moment. So you, you started on this process. You said it was a public company, so you can't. So we can't actually say who the buyer was, right? Yeah, no, I could say it wasn't public when I sold it. It, it became public at the end of 2020. It's called Advantage Solutions. So they're like a public cpg consumer product good company they do a lot of retail sales brokering into like walmart and target in the u.s they actually own a company called or they they have like some subsidiary called smullen in south africa that also has some presence in australia so they're pretty global it's like a four billion dollar company nice nice so clearly there was synergies in what they're doing there was a, a few strategic levers as to why they were looking at you yeah, so so as I alluded a bit, they had a very big brick and mortar presence, and obviously that's been really disrupted since COVID. But even before, right, they saw the writing on the wall, and they wanted more of a. They additionally wanted a digital presence, so they already bought a few Amazon or e-commerce, Shopify, whatever related businesses or agencies. So we were just a, I guess, another notch in that. Obviously, we had our own, you know, methods and strategies as discussed, and logistics and 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 go to go to market model. But that that was like the interest or the synergy. What if they brought their brands to us to do the the Amazon or ecom work, right? Because they have so many brands, and like that would be a great, you know, uh, potential. That that was kind of the thought process. Yeah, great. And and were there were there other parties in the mix? Like, did you get any other offers from other people? Yeah, we did. I think this was the most attractive as far as let's say the value or the synergy or a lot of things because also it. You know, it's not just the money. It's not just, you know, the other party, obviously your employees. Like I want to make sure all my employees moved over, which they did, which is cool. And, you know, who are you working with? And it's very hard to kind of understand that uh, when you're just like sending emails or maybe you meet someone once. How do you know what's going to be like to work with them if you have an earnout or if you don't? You know, that's very hard to 
figure out. I, I don't know how I, you know, would have done that differently. So that's always interesting to see how different companies are run. Um, yep. Just kind of I'm not sure how you handle that with your clients, but it's one of those things that I don't really, really get. Like you're going to work with this company for so long, or maybe for a year or two, but you know, do you even know who you're who you're working with? Um, so that's like something that I had to get around my head around, and I had to kind of weigh that into the decision, or we had to weigh that into the decision between these guys and whoever else was interested. So we had, so back to your question, sorry, we had some other offers of different levels of seriousness and and strength, but this was, I guess, more, felt a bit better on, on many levels. So we kind of pursued that. And once you pursue that, like you're exclusive with that deal. So you can't really do the others. So that's also a hard decision. Like, okay, we're doing this, you know, because maybe the other ones will go away. But we had some offers, you know, I, I would have liked more, obviously. I would have liked to, to have a more competitive process, but you know you can't always uh, have that. But it was it was pretty um, thorough, I would say. Yeah, I'm sure the bank has created a sense of competitive tension. <laughs> they try, yeah. It's 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 kind of a, it's interesting. It's kind of like a game in a way, with all the with data transfer and whatnot, which is also interesting to me. Um, but yeah, it was it was it was an interesting process. Yeah, and I think that's probably part of the benefit of having an intermediary, right? Is that they can um, they can help manage that process in a way that it sort of protects you from the fray and um, creates yeah. that sense of competitive tension. For sure. With a lot of my guests, Satan, I, I we talk a lot about the sort of deal structures, and I don't want to go into anything that might be confidential for you, but um, we do see obviously a, most deals kind of have one or more portion of either there's cash up front. Maybe there's a deferred component where, you know, like you, you, it's not at risk, but you get paid in, you know, over time. And then there's kind of an earnout that can often be at, at risk or fully at risk or partially at risk. Are you able to give us a sense of, did you have one or, you know, was it split over a different sort of things like that for you? Yeah, I, I can't really say much, but I'll say just because of the confidentiality and the agreement, but I would say, yeah, it was like, you know, kind of, um, portion up front, portion over time kind of deal. So there's incentive based and goal based, uh, which is kind of, you know, maybe the best of both worlds are trying to achieve some liquidity plus, you know, upside earnout kind of kind of model. Um, something like that. Yeah, yeah, gotcha, gotcha. No, that's fine. And um, and did so you were you and your business partners, I presume, were hanging around after the deal for a while? Yeah. I stayed for like a year. Okay. My partner stayed for like another quarter, maybe like 15, 16 months. Gotcha. Uh, I, I indicated to them that I, you know, it's always tricky. Like when someone buys you and they're like, okay, why do you want to sell? Like, why are you getting out? You know, maybe the house is on fire. So I, I, I just like I told you, I said, this is great. There's a lot of potential, but like, I think we took it as far as maybe we can and we want to move on and we could help and we could cross pollinate and do all these great things, you know, but obviously I don't plan on being here. So obviously I let them know that. It's a bit of a it's a bit of a tricky conversation, but I was I think it went well as far as the the communication. They, they knew I was going to go, and they had to like kind of get certain things in a row because I was, you know, doing a lot and has to transfer over. No, and that makes sense. And I think especially with large companies, large companies who do lots of transactions, you would think are pretty good at doing transitions, and they understand that not every vendor is looking to stick around for another ten or twenty years. So it's you know there's there's uh, you know wanting to go and do other things is a very legitimate reason for wanting to sell. And so uh, yeah. I think as you've done, Etan, I think it's just about having those discussions and and being upfront and and yeah, you know, you work your way through it, right? Sure. So 
you sold the business. Um, I'm always I'm always curious. Did you um, you know Did you have a party? Did, was there some sort of celebration? Was there a, a reward, a trophy? <laughs> I wish. No, I actually went. I sold the business. It was New Year's, and we had to do an inventory count on <laughs> the next day. So, like on New Year's, I'm like flying to LA, so that on January second, which is the first day the warehouse is open. I could do a clean inventory account so we can establish, you know, opening balances and all this stuff that I learned too much about. And I was in the warehouse for like two days because it had to audit it. And no, so therefore there was no celebration. I had to like do all the legal work, like on the laptop, like on a plane. And then I had to go right into it. And then I, then I had to onboard all hundreds of vendors and like transition. So like the first quarter was really, 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 really hard for me because there's a lot of work, but also it's dealing with a much bigger company. Different systems and processes, and I never really had to answer it to anybody before. Right? I was like the dude or my partner. Like now, it's like huge departments and compliance, and like I learned, I learned a lot uh, about larger companies. And so the answer is no party, a lot of hard work. I didn't really sleep for like six months, uh, and then I kind of slowly tried to transition away. So it's a very hard hard year because it's just it's just a lot of work. Um, I still haven't made a formal party. Maybe maybe I will. Um, but no, uh, and I didn't on the, on the emotional side, if you want to go there, I, I didn't feel like, Oh, like, you know, I did it, you know, or like, like life is complete or like, Oh, I made it again. Like I'm very thankful, you know, I made some money, like, that's great. You know, but again, it's not just about that. It's also like giving away your baby. So you have that, like, maybe it's a buyer's remorse or like the emotional side to it. So it's really not, well, let's have a party. Like you see yeah. in the movies, it's, I mean, maybe some people are like that, but there's so much emotion and I wasn't, unfortunately, I wasn't able to internalize it because I had so much to do that I was like far from relieved, uh, to be honest with you. You know, and, and and that's that's once again, I think is quite a common thing because it's no, it's not like you sign a contract and it's done. Oh, yay. I've suddenly got this big, all this money in my account. I never have to do anything more. Like there's this transition and there's this process. And as you said, you know, you're on flights, there's a lot of work. It's. So you don't, I don't think there's a, there's no finish line as such because, you know, like it kind of fades out over time until eventually yeah. you're just not doing anything anymore. And so, so I, I actually think that that's, yeah, I think there'd be a lot of business owners, certainly a lot of my guests who would, would agree with what you've just said. And I, and I think probably too, maybe that's, that's part of the reason why it's so important to have something else to move on to and give you focus and get your joy out of. Yeah, a hundred percent. I agree with you. And just to touch on that. Um, so, you know, now I'm with this other company, which I'll, I'll touch on a bit, but I'm very lucky to have a position now and I could tell you how it happened if you want to go there. But yeah, I've seen a lot of people and I could just imagine like if I didn't have anything to do. So even though I had a very hard transition, it was just a lot of work and time and effort and big company, like it's, that's, you know, that's life sometimes. I was occupied, right? If I would have just went from that to like zero, I mean, the way I am, I can't like, sit still that much obviously i want to balance my work and life but i can't just like not do anything uh money or 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 quality of life aside so thankfully i got into this company uh that i'm working with now uh over time and i was kind of helping them a bit and 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 friendly with them to the point where once the transition completed i was able to kind of start and that was very i mean i spent a lot of time on it but i was very lucky to have that um i don't like if i was still searching for something to do now i mean i'm sure i would have found something but uh it would just also be very hard to uh i guess be happy uh right away 
yeah, completely understand. I think we're we're fundamentally purpose purpose driven beings, right? It's uh, you need to have something to put your energy and focus on, and and that makes sense. And I and I want to get to what you're doing a little bit in a moment sure. because it's um you know it's it's the next phase of life, right? But um, I I would be remiss if I didn't ask um without going into confidentiality again. But I think a lot of people listening to this would be um, wondering how Amazon e-com businesses like this typically get value. Um, you know, without going into your numbers or anything that might be private, but um, you know, are they? We, we see businesses selling on multiples of revenue or multiples of EBITDA or di- you know, discounted cash flow models and all this sort of stuff. But <laughs> was was there a typical model that you guys looked at or that buyers traditionally used with you? So as I mentioned before, it was very rare to sell an Amazon business or brand, let alone a reseller, where you don't really have that many agreements and you know. Or, or maybe we had some long agreements, but not that many. Again, like, you know, what's the moat to, to compete with it? So maybe brands would sell. And even that, like transferring an Amazon account to another entity was also not so clear if you could do it. And Amazon was vague about it. Um, so agencies were starting to sell. Like, it, brand, and we, we kind of did that a bit where we tried. Some of our revenue was from that, where we actually, ma- I'd say I manage your brand and I take a percentage of revenue. So when we went to market, which I didn't mention, most of these private equity and, 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 um, Capital groups wanted agencies because agencies don't have any inventory. It's a revenue share. It's almost like software. It's not easy to do. We tried. Now there's many agencies and it became very popular. But the second we mentioned inventory, like many just like hung up the phone. Yes. So what's, and for many reasons that I get, because it's hard, especially now with supply chain, it's crazy. But what's crazy is, as I mentioned to some of the listeners who know, this whole Thrasio aggregator model where they're buying Amazon brands left and right, they literally want you to be Amazon. They want you to be concentrated, which is always bad. They want you to have inventory, which is always bad. So this is a little after I sold, the world changed. So with that, with that frame of mind and that, that understanding, um, you know, now there's like a multiple of EBITDA for these Amazon brands. Gotcha. Uh, it could be three, four, five, six, depending on the size. Uh, it's, it was probably two to three. Now it's three to five based on the fact that the market's so competitive and it's almost like a bubble with all these aggregators. So we didn't really have our own brand. We had an agency, now agency, but it was a reseller. So whatever, those are the, those are the variables. So I didn't know, four or five, six, seven, it really depended on the buyer, the timing, uh, lots of other things. So I, I, I came in with a big range, you know, and I, it was somewhat accurate. But right now, it's very different than what it was. Like right now, I could tell you with pretty much certainty what a brand sells for based on what size and agency, because there's so many more transactions. It was kind of, uh, it was very new, new, if not, you know, unheard of at that point. Yeah, yeah. Look, and I, and I think that the takeaway here for listeners is, you know, don't, don't just accept a, a, a basic range, right? There are so many variables that you've just heard from Aton's example as well. Like, you know, how much, how big, how big is your revenue? How much margin do you actually get versus other people? What is the actual timing? All these different, different arrangements that can make you different from the guy standing next to you. So yeah. I think that's, that's the point. And, and as you even pointed, even timing, right? Timing in the market. And it's funny because this last, um, you know, 12 months, I mean, I hear people, and it's even being reported in the press these days, best time in M&A history ever. More money, more deals being done right now than ever before, um, whereas I think people would have, I think if you go back a year, people would never have thought that would be happening through the tail end of a pandemic, right? Um, so, you know, being in the market at the right time and dealing with the right people in the right timing can, can be a massive variable as well. 
for sure. And you can never really know the answer to that. You could try your best and, uh, you know, listen to some of the other things we maybe we said today, but timing one is tough, right? If everyone knew that, they'd be very wealthy in the market, but it's not. It doesn't work like that. Yeah, totally, totally. Okay, so before I, I move on from quantum, my, my last question for you is if, I mean, if somebody was going out into, you know, Amazon land and getting into e-com and stuff like this, I mean, is there a couple of tips that you'd share with them about, you know, how to start a business like this or a couple of the key things they should focus on? Um, yeah, I mean, now it's kind of, again, more common. When I started, it was not such a common thing to do. But, you know, if you look at some of these courses that exist now, there's like real business plans and ways to grow an Amazon business. So even though it's competitive, you know, Amazon and an e-commerce customer base is just growing so much that there's room for people to get in. I recommend like trying to find something a bit niche, kind of like I did, meaning there's a lot of conquered uh, categories like power banks and whatnot. You're probably not going to be successful. But if you come up, I always, and I used, always used to say this, I still do. If you come up with a model or a product that's just hasn't been you know, hasn't been uh, turned into e-commerce yet. Like, like, like I used to say, plumbing supplies. Like, very convoluted and complicated. But what if you just had a website where you had every product, every solution? It's very hard to build. It's very hard to to assure the right fit, whatever it may be. But if you could figure that out, um, you'll be the one of the you know one of the only ones doing it. So it's very very difficult. So I I, I like to find, or I encourage. It's not easy to it's easier said than done. But I encourage people to find things that are a bit out there because they're probably going to sell online. I think everything will be online, like everything and anything is, uh, as you guys see, but products are, are obvious. So it's just a matter of time. So if you could be the one to do it, great. You could also compete on something that you know and do a better job at advertising or design. Like that's fine too. There's a lot of room, but as this grows, eventually it'll be, it'll eventually become saturated. So I don't know. Those are a bunch of points, like unique product timing, uh, yeah. how you, how you go to market. Yeah, and ev- and evolution. It's it's funny, you know, having a few roles I've done and I've worked in corporate space and run my own businesses and I, I always think in some ways, you know, change is inevitable, right? Like people are going to come after you, the world will change, the market will evolve. It, and if you're not willing to evolve and almost cannibalize your own revenue with the next evolution, then somebody else will probably do it for you. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So what are you doing these days? Tell me, tell us a bit more about your current business. Yeah, so, so just to, put it all together. So when I started, uh, when I was at Quantum in 2010 or 11, I noticed, you know, we were selling a lot of stuff via Amazon as discussed. And we sent, we sent Amazon fulfillment, which is called FBA fulfillment by Amazon. A lot of the products would have issues or discrepancies. So Amazon holds the inventory and they ship it, but there's issues on the way to Amazon and to the other fulfillment center, you name it. Now, maybe it's only one or two or 3%, but in any business or specifically in a lower margin business, of which I was, that's material dollars. So for example, if we were making 10% margins, uh, then if we can get back one to 2% in reimbursement, that's 15, 20% of our net income or EBITDA. And actually it was. So when I sold my business, almost 16 or 15% was reimbursements, which I'll explain. So what does that mean, reimbursements? That means that there's times that Amazon makes these different mistakes in numbers or calculations on on all these different uh, factors. And again, I built a, a software in 2011 to kind of do this for the company, kind of AI slash some human interaction to find these issues and file cases and get claims. Most people, most sellers don't know that you could even tell Amazon that they made a mistake, but you can, it just has to be done in the proper way. And that was the early days. Someone actually ran with that idea as like a business, which is which is interesting. Um, but 
it still wasn't doing it for me. And I went to several providers in the market because I really was keen on that, those dollars. And then eventually I wound up with the guys from Gatita, which is the company I'm with now. And I actually met him at this Prosper show, which is this online uh, Amazon trade show that I actually also started. That was one of the other businesses that I did and sold. And I gave them a shot. I was just kind of interested in their model. And it was very, very significant uh, to our bottom line and how it worked. And I got a little more interested. So I basically became friends with the guys uh, at the show I created. That's kind of the, the short story. And then I was you know, sending them a lot of business and everyone was very happy. Whether they didn't use a provider, whether they used a different provider, with the experience, they're happy with the interface and all that. And like, it was just a goodwill because the person would be happy that I introduced them and they were happy that they had new clients. And I was trying to think maybe there's a place for me. You know, I wasn't really interested in like commission sales at that point. So I was like, yeah, you know, we'll figure it out. And then when the pandemic happened, I, or not, I mean, even after that, when I started realizing I was going to go away from the acquirer, I, I, I got into some deeper discussions and I guess, long story short, I actually invested in, I'm the CEO now of this company. So as discussed, we, we basically help sellers get back money from Amazon. Yep. Um, we have a software that finds the problems. We have a whole service team that actually files the cases or a solution. It's a software and a service, which is really the key. You can't just have the problems. You actually have to have the full service together. That's what leads to a very high success rate and um, very, let's say, you know, quality cases and, and, and information. And yeah, we're, we're growing quite rapidly. I'm trying to help the growth here. It's a bit different business. It's more of like a software tech-enabled business than selling products. And I'm really enjoying it. I'm helping sellers. I'm using my experience as a seller and I'm using my network of sellers and knowledge to really kind of, you know, take this to the next level. And so far, so good. Yeah, that's cool. That's very cool. It's uh, And it's a big shift going from selling products to, to software and services and things like that, right? It's a shift. That, I guess the commonality is that I'm helping people make more money and make smart decisions with their inventory where, where, where I may not have or that was something I was keen on before. But at least I don't have to deal, let's say, with the, the cash flow or the, the actual units. I can just help people kind of align there, which is really rewarding as well. It's not just, again, not money or, 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 or fame, but it's really like really helping sellers in the community. And we try to do that with, with our education and our tools. Yeah, nice, nice. It's it's funny because, it, as you say, this whole selling on Amazon thing is is just it's it's evolved and it it's um it certainly sort of popped up on my radar probably about three years ago, three four years ago that I started hearing about this as well, and and probably less advanced here in Australia than of course the US because Amazon took a little time to get here, but um. But I, but I always feel like now it's almost like a cottage industry has popped up of people teaching other people how to have an or start and build an Amazon business. Um, so it's it's kind of that to me is the sign that it's evolved when people are creating these little mini businesses, right? I, I imagine people like that are probably keen to be affiliate partners or something of yours as well, right? I mean, hey, if you're going to do this, do that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. So I know I don't want to focus on let's say the one business, but that that Prosper show that I started that was one of the first with a bunch of folks, that was one of the first trade shows like in the industry. And before then there was really nothing. But since then, and obviously this this last show, uh, it was you know thousands of people and hundreds of vendors. Obviously the industry grew and the show grew, but to your point, there's so many sellers and there's people trying to make money off them, some good, some some not good. And yeah, there's there's courses and masterminds and weekend getaways. And a lot of it's good. A lot of it's, again, a lot of it's not. And I don't like that. I don't like this get rich quick. Hey, you know, watch this YouTube video and you'll make them a lot of money or just do this at night and you'll make a lot of money. Cause the reality is uh, if someone wants to hear that 
it's very hard, as I mentioned, and grueling. And if you, it's not a passive income that doesn't exist, that, that term, and you need to be in, in the game. So if you could take these courses and be one of the few percentage people that actually do everything, then great. But don't think that's likely. Again, you just see the success. So not to burst everyone's bubble, it's very hard and it just gets harder. But yes, it's a tremendous opportunity. You could just reach the whole world on a, a platform of products. It's unbelievable. And if you work hard, you'll you'll be successful. But just be weary of some of these get rich quick courses that have crept in. Uh, to your point, yeah, really, really great advice. Um, I think this idea of you know we've all heard it right. If it's too good to be true, it probably is. Uh, it's probably not real, and all this sort of stuff, all these analogies. It's ultimately business has its challenges, right? You got to be passionate. You got to have the drive and the willingness to push through the hard times because every business has them. So, for sure. Hey, Zan, I've, I've really enjoyed your time. I really appreciate you sharing your story with me. Um, are you happy for people to reach out and connect with you? Yeah, of course. Cool, cool. No um, I, we've got a few links for you, of course. Um, I, I, most people kind of are happy they're on LinkedIn, and I know you're on LinkedIn. We're connected. Um, yeah. is, that, is that a good way for people to reach out? Yeah, you could email me. It's my first name, Eitan, E-Y-T-A-N, at Katita, my company.com, G-E-T-I-D.com, or you could do LinkedIn, or you could do Facebook, or you could. Whatever. I'm, I'm pretty awesome. responsive. I like to help. I'm happy to help. Um, I like to learn. And yeah, I appreciate you having me. It was, it was fun. Oh, an no, absolute pleasure. Well, look, we'll put all those links, including your email, into the into the show notes for those listening. And as we always say on the show, if you do reach out, maybe just let Eitan know that you you heard him being interviewed on the podcast, so he at least has some, some context as to why you're reaching out. Um, but uh, Eitan, thank you again. I'm, I'm super grateful. Um, it's been fun ch- chatting to you. And uh, yeah, really appreciate it. Thank you. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Find out how you score on the eight factors that drive company value by completing the Value Builder questionnaire. Upon completion, we will send through your business scorecard so you can see how to maximize the value of your company. Just go to exitadvisory.com.au forward slash scorecard. The Buy, Grow, Sell podcast is brought to you by Exit Advisory Group, a boutique M&A firm that helps business owners maximize company value and exit at the top of their game. To learn more about Exit Advisory Group, you can go to exitadvisory.com.au. And if you like what you've just heard, you can subscribe at buygrowsell.com to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.